Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you and give you thanks. You are the Lord and God of all. You've saved us. You've redeemed us. You drew us to your Son. When we were in our sinfulness, you saw us. You had compassion, and you saved us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done. Lord, I ask for your blessing upon those who are traveling. It's such a heavily traveled time of the year. Keep them safe, Lord. We just ask that those who are of our midst, especially that are traveling, you would return them safely. May your grace go with them. For those among us who are ill, bring them healing and comfort, Lord Jesus. We pray for quick recovery. For those who are watching today um, on computer or the app, we ask for your blessing upon them. Lord, I ask that your word would go forth and accomplish what you've determined to accomplish with it. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not only is it my honor to bring the word of God today in sermon, but it also to uh, preside over the Lord's Supper. It is such a privilege to do that. But because of that, we have like a short amount of time to get through. So we're going to go through Romans chapter 12. So if you turn in your Bibles, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Now, this won't be an exhaustive exposit of these passages here, but there is something that I believe that the Lord wants us to know from these passages. Now, I have four points that we're going to run through rather quickly. We'll spend probably a little bit more time on the third point. So if you have your your handouts, your sermon outline handout, um, I encourage you to go through that. Well, some time ago, my family and I made the decision that we were not going to have cable or satellite television. And I don't regret it at all, right? So we had this big bill, and you had all of these channels with nothing to watch, right? So we're watching our money going out the door, and what channels were there? It was just stuff I wouldn't want piped into my living room anyway. So we made that decision to cut it, and we just kept something like Netflix so we could watch something, you know, when we wanted to and what we wanted to. But this year in particular, I said, you know, we miss watching some football, and we want to have some more football in-house. We could watch a, a show or a game or two on, on the NFL app or sometimes ESPN, but it's kind of spotty. You can't always get the games you want to watch. And the only alternative is to do the pirated stuff, which I'm not going to do that. That's not a good example for my family. So we made the decision to get one of those streaming subscription services that allows you to have some selected live channels. And you may know what I'm talking about. And one thing, though, watching has been great. We get to watch some football games. But one thing that I had forgotten how much I hate, commercials. <laughs> Man, I hate commercials. I hate commercials on my, ch- my television. I hate commercials on YouTube. I hate commercials on Spotify, Pandora. I just hate ads. I just do. And then they, they try to ransom you with this and say, well, you don't have to watch that if you pay this per month. Well, I don't want to do either. I don't watch the ad and I don't want to pay a subscription so I don't watch the ad. But it's one of those things that you just have to take it, I suppose. And watching commercials... I've noticed a pattern. And the pattern surrounds a particular word, and the word is passion. Find your passion. Live your passion. We can help you achieve your passion. Of course, they never really quite define passion and what that means. I mean, you have a whole bevy of commercials that talk about passion, whether it's a, a general investment house that says, we do the work for you so you can live your passion, but they don't tell you what your passion is. There are some that try to tell you what your passion is, and it's what they're selling you in the process. But what is passion? 
I have young people that will occasionally come to my office and say, Pastor Brian, I'm really struggling with knowing what the Lord's will is in my life. And it's usually followed up by a simple statement, I just don't know what I'm passionate about. And I'll stop and say, well, what does that mean to you? What does is, what is passionate about something mean to you? And there's a lot of, well, uh, uh, and, and dancing around it because they don't even know what that means. But we're taught in our society through media and whatnot to seek and live out your passion. Seldom ever, though, is passion ever connected with God or the Christian life. So the question then is, is there a place for passion in living out the Christian life? And what does it mean? Well, if you have your little sermon notes there, you obviously know the answer to that question is yes, because that's the title of the sermon, Living the Christian Life Passionately. You see, the scriptures not only expect that we live the Christian life, hence being Christian people, we live the Christian life, but it also expects us to live it passionately. And this is where we're going to begin now in Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 9. Now, when I picked 9 through 13, because if you look at 12, chapter 12 is very, very hard to outline. You know, the Apostle Paul, he, he, he organizes his thoughts in circles, I like to call it, ever-widening circles. He starts out with a concept. And he really exhausts that concept, but then he ends up circling back to that same concept and takes it a little bit deeper, a little bit higher. And then he circles back to that. And it's really hard to outline. I'm an outline guy. I like to know where the parts fit into the whole. That helps me. I'm like an organization kind of person. And it was really hard to do this. But verses 9 through 13 really are talking um, in a way to the people within the church. Verses 14 through 21 are people outside the church. Now, in 9 through 13, which is the text of this message, I'm not going to get into every single aspect, but I want us to see the expectation of living the Christian life passionately. So let me read this to you. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor, I love that word, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Some of your translations may say zeal or business. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Well, if you're following along in the notes in the outline, you'll see that the first point is kind of an introductory point, really. And the point is, is that what Apostle Paul in this entire chapter is driving home is the fact that what you truly believe is always, always, always reflected in how you live your life. Now, notice I said truly believe. Because there's a difference between truly believing something and knowing something with your brain, right? How many of us have seen people that have a claim of a belief of whatever kind? It doesn't have to be Christianity. It could be anything. A claim of belief, but their lifestyle does not give evidence of that belief whatsoever. What do we call that? Hypocrisy or a hypocrite, right? That's what we call that. Now, many of you, when I asked that question, you merely thought Christians, and that will be true, but I don't want us to bash on Christians too hard yet. We're getting there. But, but we're talking about everyone says they believe something. But you can tell whether they truly believe it 
It's transformative, and it will find expression in how they live their lives. Some of you budding theologians probably have heard the term that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Confusing? Yes, it probably should be. So really, what it's saying is what you truly believe is how you live your life, not merely head match. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. If you've been in Florida for longer than a day, you know that one of our bumper crops in the past were what? Oranges, right? Citrus in general, but especially oranges. You remember what John the Baptist said when he was preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but another sermon that he would preach, it's very much highlighted in the scriptures. He said, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, and whatever tree that does not produce good fruit will be cast down and thrown into the fire. Now, let me go back to the, the, the orange example. Now, I'm not going to use a cliche thing. Like, when you go to an orange tree, you expect to see oranges, right? Of course, that's a duh statement. I'm going to give you a different example. Say you have, in the distance, this orange tree, and it looks like there's oranges all over, but the closer you get, you realize there's something wrong with that tree. And you walk up to the fruit, and it has these dark, nasty little legions, lesions all over the fruit. And then on closer inspection, you see it on the leaves. You might even see it on the branches that are around that fruit. And if you've been in Florida for longer than a day, you know that's called citrus canker. Citrus canker is a wildly contagious disease. And in Florida, we've lost whole crops of oranges due to citrus canker. You know what the cure is for citrus canker? Cut it down. Burn it up. To my knowledge, and there may be some more people that are astute in horticulture, uh, horticology and other things, agriculture and whatnot, that may have a different remedy. But to my knowledge, there is no cure to citrus canker. It's wildly contagious because those spores can get up into the air. It can go from one tree to the next. And before long, your entire orchard is ruined. Now, you could take the fruit down off the tree and think, okay, next year is going to be different. I'm going to cultivate this tree better, give it some more time and attention. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to prune it. I'm going to do everything I know how to do. And next year, you're going to have less oranges than you did the year before and you're going to see the same lesions all over that thing. This is what John the Baptist was talking about. The fruit is the, the outworking of the tree itself. And John the Baptist was saying that the axe is at the root of the tree, and any fruit that doesn't bear good fruit is cast out and thrown into the fire. He's saying that we're looking at the expression, the outward expression of what you claim to believe. It's in the root. It's taken hold of your life. See, John, what Paul is doing here, and, and really, Romans was read like in one setting to everybody. But through 1 through 11, he's laying down the foundation of what we believe. He talks about the problem of sin, the problem of pain in the world, and all that craziness that goes along with the sinful nature in this world, how it rules in our bodies, and our members. He obliterates the idea that there's one people group that could be better than another. Jews and Gentiles were all enslaved to sin in, in some way and in some manner. But he takes that bad news and he couples it with the good news that Jesus Christ came to be the sacrifice for sin. Once for all time, laying down his life for those who would believe. That's why in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, therefore, in light of what I just said, chapters 1 through 11, 
and in light of the mercies of God, the mercies of God in salvation, that he's merciful, he's kind, he doesn't want to leave us in the state that, that we're in. He had a plan from before eternity passed, and he brought the plan to fruition in Jesus Christ by the mercies of God. Now, the rest of the chapter is how we live. And I don't want you necessarily to read chapter 12 as being, these are the things that I must do to live a good Christian life. Yes, the Bible commands us to live holy lives, and we do have daily choices that we must make. But I also want us to look at this as being, Paul says, in light of God's mercy that you claim to believe. These are Roman Christians he's writing to. In light of what you claim to believe, this is what your life is going to naturally look like. And he goes through this process of explaining what the Christian life should be like. It's so easy to say Christian life, isn't it? About 82% of Americans claim to be Christian. Seriously? I mean, if 82% of Americans claim to be Christian, I pretty much can guarantee this nation would look fundamentally different than it does now. Because what you believe will always be reflected in how you live. We struggle. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. I want us to make sure we get that clear. Because we're not perfect. We're still struggling with the old remnants of the sin nature within us. It's already been paid for. It's already been broken. We struggle, right? That's called sanctification or progressive sanctification. As Pastor Scott and the DTP folks, our, our Discipleship Training Program folks, are well aware we have this big chart. You know, you come to Christ here in your life. The goal is to be like Jesus Christ. And throughout the process of your life, you're growing closer and closer in conformity to the life of Christ. Now, in a perfect world, we'd be boop, right there. But this is not a perfect world, and we still wrestle with the sinful flesh. So we truck along, and we grow in Christ, and then we kind of dip a little bit. But we don't dip back down to where we were. The Holy Spirit calls us to repentance. And then we're back up on track, getting closer and closer to conformity to Christ. That's what we mean when we say that what you believe will always, always be reflected in how you live your life. That's the mercies of God. But you know, in order to say, I want to live the Christian life passionately, maybe we should talk a little bit about what that means. That'll bring us to our next point, which is the character. What is the characteristic of the Christian life? The character of the Christian life is love. Verses 9 and 10. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in love. You know, it's such an interesting thing that he almost is jarring if you read this passage. Okay, so we go through the mercies of God, chapters 1 through 11. Then you get to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. In light of those mercies, this is how you respond and live your life. You commit yourself to the Lord. That's verses 1 and 2. You dedicate yourself to him. I'll no longer be conformed to the world anymore. My life and my life's pattern is now radically different to the way it is. I am now going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I want to be more like Jesus Christ. And then verses 3 through 8, he talks about spiritual gifts. So now that I made a radical commitment to Christ, I can see that God has given me gifts and talents that he chooses to use for his glory. So I serve. 
I teach, I'll preach, I'll minister mercy, I give, I lead. He goes through all of these, and then you look at verse 8. He goes through this, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Oh, let love be without hypocrisy. It's kind of jarring a little bit there, right? He kind of puts the brakes on this Cadillac of the Christian life and says, let love be without hypocrisy. But this is really the pattern of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, he talks about spiritual gifts and how to use them in the church. And in the middle of all that, he devotes an entire chapter, chapter 13, about love. And what's odd to me, and I don't mean any disrespect to the scriptures, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. That word love is agape. And you all know what agape means. That's the highest form of love. It's, it's an unconditional love that I am not going to think of myself whatsoever in this. I'm going to pour my life out in service for someone else, even if it means my death. That's agape. So he says, let agape be without hypocrisy. If it's agape, how do you have hypocrisy? You don't. If you have hypocrisy, how can you have agape? You can't. They're two diametrically opposed concepts. And folks, that is the point. He's giving us this overarching principle that God's love is in you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the agape love that the Father lavished out upon you in Jesus Christ. It's in you. But that love needs to find an expression. It can't just stay within us. Okay, you know, the whole can't keep the candle in a bushel. It has to come out. Its purpose is to come out through you. So what Paul is saying is, in light of these mercies of God, you who claim to believe this, everything you think, everything you say, everything you do should be characterized by unconditional divine love. Ooh, that's a tall order, is it not? You know, and he kind of takes it a step further here, and he says, this love is very peculiar. I'm going to say this carefully. It's a love that can hate. Unconditional love, hate evil. Abhor evil. Be repulsed by evil. Obviously, if we're going to have the love of God within us, and that love is going to find its expression in everything that we do around us, this love must abhor what's evil and cling to what's good. And that word is so interesting, that cling. It's the same kind of word that the Old Testament uses for the word cleave. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. It's the concept of fusing, being like glue, held and fastened together. This is the agape love. It must find its expression by hating what is evil. It didn't say patiently tolerate evil. Don't play around with, with evil. Is it that more the expression of our lives at times, if we're honest? That we truly don't abhor what is evil. We toy with it. I told you we're starting to stamp on the toes a little bit there. We don't abhor it. We toy with it. We play around with it. We tolerate it. We look the other way and we theologically muse to ourselves, well, that's a sinful flesh. We don't hate it. 
Now, you can hate something and, and not sin. Obviously, Jesus Christ hated evil, but he didn't sin in his anger whatsoever. This is that unconditional love that's finding expression. And really, it goes like this. I love Christ. That's what I believe. I've been transformed by the mercies of God. Chapters 1 through 11. I love Christ. Therefore, Christ loves this. Therefore, I love this because I love Christ. I am close to Christ. I love Christ, and I see that Christ hates this. Therefore, I'm going to hate it. It's not a choice that I sit down and think, okay, what am I going to hate today? What am I going to love today? No, it's I'm going to love Christ. And if anything doesn't shake out in the love of Christ, I'm staying away from that. I'm going to abhor what is evil. I'm going to cling to what is good. And who is the greatest good? Christ. Love Christ more. Don't hate evil more. It's so easy for us to curse the darkness, is it not? We're not called to curse anything. We're called to be with Jesus Christ. Christ is the one that's at work bringing the enemies of God as a footstool for his feet. God didn't call us to do that. But he called us to live in this agape, unconditional love. And I know you're thinking, man, that is really a tall order. I do love Christ. But sometimes I struggle a little bit with feeling love. I mean, you see right there, this expression of love is to be devoted to one another. Verse 10, devoted to one another in brotherly love. So this agape love that resides within us now finds its expression with a familial kind of love. That's what that Greek word means. It's a familial kind of love. A love of a family member. Doesn't that make sense? Here we are called to be the body of Christ. In fact, Verse 4 says, just as we have many members in one body, we are one body in Jesus Christ. We are family. And there's nothing that grieves God more, I believe, than seeing Christians hate each other, despise one another. Man, I've seen church splits, and you probably were of church splits, where people just start hating each other. That's well, because we have lost our love for Christ. We started focusing on the things and the people instead of who Christ is. And you're thinking, well, yeah, I, I understand that. And, and I've been captured by the mercies of God. I feel transformed by those things. And I come to church and I do enjoy being with church. But there's some days I just don't want to be with anybody. And I don't feel that kind of love. I don't feel it in my being. Well, let's move on. Okay, so we know that the character of the Christian life is love. Let's look at our next point. The catalyst of the Christian life. See, I'm trying to keep a C pattern going here. A catalyst. And I'm not going to get science with you. We're not going to talk about chemical reactions or anything like that. I'm just going to use catalyst in the sense that something that precipitates an event and fuels it. That's pretty simple enough, I think. The catalyst of the Christian life is working for Jesus passionately. Let's look at verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You know, sometimes Paul puts what I call anchor verses. And I think this is one of those anchor verses that help drive and fuel what he's commanding Christians to be. Because it's a tall order to love each other with that familial love. It's a tall order to abhor what's evil constantly when we wrestle with the sinful flesh. It's a tall order to cling like glue to what is good at all times. Well, let's get to what Paul is saying here, what I think is a catalyst. 
And these two clauses, I think, are really good counterbalances for each other. And that first clause is not lagging behind in diligence. What's diligence? Working hard. We think diligence, not lagging behind. And there's some of us that love to work, and we latch on to that. Work, don't lag behind. Push forward. We heard an amazing scripture reading this morning. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. We always need to be at the Lord's service. Although by itself, we can really get absorbed in the work, can't we? And it becomes about the work, and not about Christ for whom we are working. You know, I, I went to a fundamentalist school once and they had this hymn and I'd never heard this hymn before and, and I, I really wasn't raised in a fundamentalist tradition but I went to this fundamentalist college and, and so some of these hymns that they were singing were, were fairly new to me and so we turned to hymn number 328 and I checked and that's really the number and the chorus of this song is we'll work till Jesus comes we'll work till Jesus comes we'll work till Jesus comes and we'll be gathered home and I thought to myself, how morbid. That's just like slavish kind of stuff. We'll work it. So when they get to that second, you know, they sing the chorus again. And we get through the whole, we'll work till Jesus comes, we'll work till Jesus, and we'll be gathered home. And I add, for more work. Because that just kind of was the sense that I got out of this. Work, 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 work. And that's all that there is to life. And just thinking about it made me exhausted. But this is ultimately what part of the scriptures is saying, is it not? We are to work heartily for the Lord. We don't work for men. We work for God as unto the Lord. We're to always abound in the work of the Lord. But we can get caught up in that. By itself, it will lead to duty as opposed to delight. By itself, work, work, work leads to pride, leads to ambition, leads to comparison, uh, comparing ourselves to one another. I'm working harder than this guy. I'm doing all right this week. That's what happens. It happens to the lost, and it happens to the redeemed occasionally because we didn't get the counterbalance to this, which is fervent in spirit. That word fervent, you break that down to the original, and it means to boil, to bubble up enthusiastic work for God. Not just slavish work, 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 and duty. But we're to do it with a spirit of excitement and enthusiasm and passion. You met new believers. They're so passionate for what they've just discovered. Verses one, or chapters 1 through 11. They're all over it. They tell everybody about it. They're excited. But unfortunately, the temptation comes in over a period of years where you don't really sense the passion quite as much as you used to. This verse is saying that you not only live the Christian life, you live it passionately. Enthusiasm matters, folks. Wholeheartedness matters. Don't settle for anything else. Psalm chapter 100 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Over and over, it says, come to the Lord rejoicing. We're to joy, have joy, glee, and excitement. But you see, by itself, without the counterbalance of work diligently, this would lead to purposeless emotionalism. Getting excited just for the sake of being excited. And if I didn't feel anything, then something must be wrong. You know, I've 
been to churches where that was the prevailing thought. You have to work yourself up into a frenzy, so that's my spiritual shot in the arm, as it were. But we counterbalance this enthusiasm with work. But I want to make sure that we understand that when we're talking about this, this enthusiasm, this excitement, this passion for Christ, I don't want you to think that we're just talking about the outward expression per se. Because, you know, some of us come from different cultural traditions that may be more expressive than others. You know, some of us Mediterraneans, you know exactly how we feel. We're going to tell you how you feel if you haven't picked up with our attitude. Ah, that's just the way we are. We get mad, you know it. You can see it right on our face. We don't hide it. But then you have folks that maybe come from Scandinavia or Northern Europe and are a bit more reserved about expressing their emotions. I had a, a friend in the military. His name was si- Sergeant Wytrollick. Hadn't thought about him in years. Sergeant Wytrollick was a fun guy to be on uh, patrol with. I was an MP. And when you're not in combat, you're just back in police cars patrolling the base. And he was such a funny guy. He was so reserved. He said his mother was Norwegian, his father was German. He was obscenely tall. It was amazing. Of course, I'm short, but everybody looks kind of tall. But he was really tall. And I would just, and he'd just be driving the car. No expression. Hey, what's going on? Yep, doing fine, doing fine. One, one time we went to a domestic disturbance call on base. And those things tend to be pretty volatile. And, and this guy was getting belligerent with us. You know, I'm, I'm getting my hackles up. I'm ready to go. And he was just all motionless. He said, sir, if you don't stop that, I'm going to put your face into the ground and it's going to hurt real bad. <laughs> I looked at What? You know, it's just it's emotionless way of explaining that. And the guy didn't believe him, right? Because it wasn't on his face. Just, just very matter of fact. You don't stop this. You don't be belligerent. I'm going to put your face in the ground. It's going to hurt real bad. Well, you know, he didn't believe him, and he shoved him. And this guy put the, the monkey stomp, <laughs> Sergeant Wytrollick put the monkey stomp on this guy like I had never seen before. And I talked to him afterward, and I said, did that just, like, come up all of a sudden? Did you, like, have a freak out or what? And he's like, no, I was amped up the moment we got the call. <laughs> I learned something that day, right? That not everyone is like me, and I'm like, oh, we got the call. Let's go, let's go. But we both were enthusiastic about the same thing. We just showed it in a different way. And that's okay. But the point that Paul is making is that we're to work diligently and hard, passionately though, and he ties them together. It says, serving the Lord. It's not just about work. And it's not just about passion. It's about working hard for Christ passionately. You know, this is probably going to be the worst ministry recruitment message you will ever hear. But, and Rachel Mergener, who's not here, may kill me later. But we don't want you to go down to children's ministry if your sole focus is, I have to go down there because I need help. You're to serve the Lord, not the ministry. See, Pastor Scott is fond of saying this, and I agree. We want to see where God is at work, and we want to join him there in that work. Nothing will frustrate you more than serving just people. People are hard to serve. You know, I have a pastor friend who may or may not be in the room today who used to be fond of, we would, we would kind of come together after a really rough family meeting or something, and, and he said to me once, he said, you know, Brian, we get so much more ministry done if it weren't for people. 
But then we laugh, right? Because there would be ministry because that's really what it's about. I mean, we serve people in that sense, but our driving motivation is that we're serving Christ. And because Christ loves people, now I love people. The more you try to love people, the less you're going to love them. That's just kind of how it works. Because I got to love people more. Okay, so what do you do? You look for things to love. And the more you look for things to love, the less you're going to find, and the more you're going to find things that you don't love about them. That's just the sinful nature asserting itself. Christ never said, man, you got to start loving people more. Start loving people more. Love Christ more. Christ loves people. So when you start loving Christ more, then he reorients your thinking, your ideas, and you begin to love people more. Don't serve a ministry. Serve Christ in that ministry, and he'll give you a heart and a desire for ministry. So many believers get caught up in that way of thinking. They say, well... I just don't know where I'm called to serve. I tried a couple things. I don't know. It just it doesn't seem to really resonate with me. And we use these odd words, you know, to explain that. It doesn't resonate with me. Well, where do you see God at work? If God wants you serving in a ministry area of this church or in the world around you, he's going to make himself plain to you in that area. That's how you know. When people come up here and talk about ministry areas or you see a video about children's ministry or you talk about the missions trips that we're taking um, overseas and supporting ministries and helping people that are affected with hurricanes and there's just something about that and you see the Lord clearly at work in there and you never saw him at work before but you know God is there and you start developing this enthusiasm for it. God wants you to serve him there. Serve Christ. I mean, Jesus said clearly, did he not? He said, you know, people were trying to test him, and he said, they said to him, what is the greatest commandment, teacher? They said, to love the Lord your God. Agapeo, the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's tough, is it not? But you can't force yourself to love Christ. Quite the opposite, actually. We love because he loved us first. John says that in 1 John chapters 1 and 2, really. We love because he first loved us. That agapeo fills us. And we start loving Christ more. And when we love Christ more, we see what he loves. He loves people. And then we love what he loves. And it's not because I said, I gotta work on loving people more. No, I want to work on loving Christ more. Be hot for Christ. I don't have time to get into it today, but I want to contrast two kinds of enthusiasms. And the first is in John chapter 2 and verse 17. This is where Jesus goes into the temple and he sees all the money changers doing their thing. They're cheating people. They're turning the whole, place, the whole temple into a marketplace, as it were. And what did Jesus do? He got upset. He started upturning tables and he was chasing people out with a whip. And the disciples, in verse 17, said the disciples remembered what it is written. And what was written was Psalm 69 in verse 9. Zeal or excitement, enthusiasm, passion. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, do you think Jesus made friends or did he make enemies by doing what he did? Let's be real. He made a lot of enemies. If you start interrupting the cash flow, you make a lot of enemies, right? 
But it didn't matter because he was zealous for his father. And it didn't matter what the fallout of all that was going to be. He just did it because he was motivated by a passion for God and God's house. Now, let me contrast that for a moment. I think we do have a few moments. We can do this. Revelation chapter 3. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to contrast this hot, passionate, serving the Lord Savior that we have with a pitiful church. Revelation 3, we're going to start with verse 15. Really, this is to the church in Laodicea. Verse 15. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. That the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And the eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be, here we go, zealous, passionate, and repent. And now verse 20, which is always taken out of context. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Laodicea. One hot, one cold. They were still the church. They were still Christians. You couldn't say that they were cold because if they were cold, you could say that they weren't really Christians. They weren't the house of the frozen chosen. They weren't hot. They were burning with passion for Christ. So what were they? They were the Christians who bought into this whole just enough brand of tepid Christianity. Just enough just enough enthusiasm, just enough service that people can look at us and say, oh yeah, I guess they are Christians, but certainly not hot enough to emulate the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why Christ is repulsed by them. I wish you were either one or the other. We could deal with one or the other. You're stuck somewhere in this weird middle, and the reality is you think you're good. He says, I'm rich. I don't have need of anything. Hey, God must be blessing me. Look at my material possessions. I'm good to go. No. Christ said, yeah, you may have a lot of material possessions, but you have no idea that you're, you're weak. You're blind. You're naked. You're the very antithesis of what you think you are. And that's good enough. You're not. Christ does not call his people to a weak, just enough Christianity. He calls us to be hot for him, passionate for him, serving the Lord with gladness, not out of duty, but out of devotion for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, if you put all this together, and you have this, you have this passion for Christ and that drives your work. You're working hardly as to the Lord, but you're doing at it with a spirit of, of enthusiasm and excitement for him. Now you can go back to verse 10 and say, I can't have love without hypocrisy. 
It's the catalyst for these things. I now could be devoted to all of you with brotherly affection and brotherly love. I can abhor what's evil because now I am close, clinging to Christ Jesus. I'm not lukewarm. I'm not cold. I'm hot for Christ. And just like Christ, I don't care about the fallout of being passionate for him. So again, that is a tall order. You might say, I want this. But what happens when I fail? What happens when on the progressive sanctification chart, I dip down a little bit? What can I do? Well, let's go to the last point. We don't have a whole lot of time to get here through all of this, but we can walk through it pretty quickly, I think. The components of the Christian life. There we go with our C's like that. Never done that before. The components of the Christian life. Joy, hope, perseverance, and prayer. Look now at verse 12. When you're struggling with your enthusiasm and excitement for Christ, which is the catalyst for the character of the Christian life, here's what you turn to. First is rejoicing in hope. What is the hope? Romans chapter 1, verses 11. The mercies of God. You know, I'm going to read this for you because we don't have time to actually turn there. But I want you to read, I'm going to read verse Peter, First Peter 1, verses 3 through 6. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, here's that word mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not be fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Yeah, it's almost a carbon copy what Paul is saying. You would think that they had the same inspiration. They did. It's the Holy Spirit. When we feel our passion, our enthusiasm wane, maybe we're slipping into just duty, or maybe we're just into emotionalism, we're so concerned about what we feel, or maybe we're not in any of that, we need to go back and start meditating on the hope of Jesus Christ, remembering what he has done for us in the gospel. You've heard it said so many times, and it bears repeating, preach the gospel to yourself. You have to do that. It's so easy to forget get caught up in routines and struggles and problems and bills and family issues and all these other things at our job and whatever. And it's easy to get our focus off of the hope. But when you start meditating on the hope, you open the scriptures, you start getting that joy in your life. How many of you can say you, that you've had this happen before in your life where you realize through the Spirit's conviction that you hadn't cracked open your scriptures in quite some time, but maybe you came to church and you read the scripture along with the pastor or BFG or maybe you're just on your own. You just picked up the Bible started reading and you felt something stirring in your soul. That's what your soul was longing for. It's the hope that's within you. We have to meditate on that hope and we start meditating on the hope. You rejoice in it and you can't rejoice. Oh, this is great. I'm glad. And you're not meditating on the right hope. Because when you start thinking about what Christ has done for you, you can't help but just have enthusiasm and passion and excitement that Christ has saved you. He didn't leave you in your lost state. He redeemed you. Perseverance and trials. The Lord is sovereign. I know that this world is not the end game. Praise God for that. 
Praise God for that. No matter how good this life will be, it is but a pale shadow, and it's really garbage compared to what Christ has in store for us. And we can go through that. Sometimes the Lord will bring us through these trials in our life to remind us of those truths. Maybe we're clinging to something too strongly, and the Lord forcibly at times rips that thing out of your life. What are we clinging to? Are we clinging to the hope? Or are we clinging to things? I can remember that God is sovereign. I can remember that the world is not the end game. And I remember, just like he said to the church of Laodicea, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Hey, God loves me. Not always easy to say when you're going through difficult things, is it? But it is something that we can remember. And that perseverance and patience will always lead us back to joy and passion. And then the last be devoted to prayer. You know, one of the first things to go in your life when you're tempted is prayer. Prayer and scripture reading, they go close hand in hand. Those are usually the prayer I find. The first thing that goes, first thing you slip on, be devoted to prayer. We need to go to the Lord. How can we claim to have a relationship with the Lord if we don't talk to him? It's no wonder we have a passionless service for Christ. We don't even talk to the one whom we're serving. And you think, well, I don't even know what to pray. Oh, you have this. Pray this back to Christ. What could you pray that's better than praying his own word back to him? I mean, you get into John 1, and the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Lord, I believe that the word was with you from the very beginning. All things were made through him. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that the word became flesh and dwelt among. You're praying his word back to him. So now you're meditating on the word. It reminds you of the hope that you have and you're praying. Passion is going to start developing in your life. Passion for serving Christ. This is what we do. Go to the scriptures if nothing else. And when we understand how to live the Christian life, we understand how to live it passionately. That is what Scripture calls us to do. Not just live out a milk-toast, boring Christian existence. Things will get better when I die and he takes me to heaven. He calls you to live the Christian life passionately, with enthusiasm. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us to serve you, but to do it passionately. I thank you for the balances that you've put in your word that would keep us from going in one error or to another. I'm so grateful that you died for us. The mercies of God that we read all throughout Scripture, but in particular, chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans. I'm grateful, Lord, that you, you would step out of heaven in order to give us this new life that we have in you. And there was nothing good in us whatsoever, Lord. Nothing that would make you want to save us except for your love and your choice in us. Thank you for doing that, Lord. I pray that you would reinvigorate our service to you. I pray that you would bring salvation to those who need to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen.